Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in to the Wired podcast. Wired is a collaboration with the WMU Lewis Walker Institute, Western Student Association, and Western's own 89.1 WIDR Kalamazoo. We're here to discuss issues that impact our campus and communities in an effort to promote equitable and inclusive communities. For today's show, we have an amazing panel of, of guests. We have with us Daryl Johnson. He is a domestic terrorism expert, and he was formerly an analyst in domestic terrorism in the Department of Homeland Security for the United States government. We also have with us WSA President Taylor West, Vice President Jacoby Wright, Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion, Dahlia Sanchez, Vice President for Political Affairs, Emma Barada, and wider host, Kyle Petronio. This is going to be a great conversation today. Our focus is right-wing extremism and what's currently going on. So let's just go ahead and get started, everybody. There are multiple states with Democratic governors. Um, actually, let's, let's back up for a second. Let's talk a little bit about our current climate. So as we know, there was a pretty serious plot against Governor Gretchen Whitmer that was developed by individuals in Michigan. And uh, we know that there are multiple states with Democratic governors who took similar, if not more extreme positions in response to COVID-19. What made Michigan fertile ground for a plot such as this against Governor Whitmer? Daryl, do you wanna start us off? Sure, um, I also let you guests know that I actually lived in Michigan for a couple of years. Uh, I was a missionary at the time in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, so I have a little flavor for the Detroit metro area and the suburbs there, and I can kind of speak to this a little bit from my perspective. Um, I'll take you back to the early 90s. It's kind of where the modern day militia movement uh, was created from. We had two standoffs between law enforcement authorities and what we would call you know, white supremacists or radical uh, religious groups. Uh, this I'm referring to the 1992 Ruby Ridge standoff in Idaho and the 1993 Waco standoff in Texas. And how the government handled those two sieges uh, came across as militaristic and heavy-handed. And so uh, in the aftermath of Ruby Ridge, we had a group of extremists that got together in Colorado and held a conference uh, to discuss what happened there and what they would do in response to the next government uh, siege on a citizen. Uh, and so that's where the idea of forming these private citizen armies originated uh, by John Trockman, uh, who was a racist minister in Montana, had introduced this idea at this conference. So fast forward about five months from Ruby Ridge, we had the Waco incident, uh, and that is the spark that ignited the modern day militia movement. And so in the aftermath of Waco, which ended a 51-day siege with the fiery uh, burning of the religious compound of the Branch Davidians, uh, we had the two first militia groups form. One was the Militia of Montana, which is kind of a publisher's clearinghouse of how to start your own militia, had all kinds of training manuals and propaganda, videotapes about different conspiracies. 
And then you had the Michigan militia, which was stood up by Norm Olson and others. And that grew into a true paramilitary organization uh, with literally thousands of members uh, at its height. So that's kind of where the roots of the modern day far right in Michigan started. But you could go back even further. Uh, there's actually a professor at uh, Eastern Michigan University. Her name is Joellen Vineyard, and she's written a book about why Michigan has become a hotbed of right-wing extremism. Uh, some things that came out that, you know, I didn't read the entire book, but basically there were KKK members here back in the 1920s. In fact, there were more KKK members in Michigan, according to Joellen, than some Southern states, uh, which is very surprising. Uh, but I kind of trace this radicalness uh, back to the early 20th century with the manufacturing industry being stood up in Michigan, the car industry. A lot of white Southerners came in carrying their racism and other things into Michigan and kind of uh, went from there. Uh, Michigan's always kind of had... Um, you know, a lot of remote areas. Uh, it's a very vast state that's bordered by all these great lakes and everything. Uh, so just the climate of Michigan, uh, the survivalist and prepper mentality is kind of pervasive here because you have long, cold winters. And that plays right into these anti-government groups and militia groups. They are, an element of them is about preparedness and about survivalism. So I think some of those factors, as well as others that I didn't mention, read Joellen's book. Uh, she probably has great insights about this, but that's kind of my take on why Michigan. Thanks, Daryl. Were there any other thoughts from the panel that wanted to, you know, we're all kind of co-moderating together, but please feel free to hop on. Yeah, I had some personal thoughts on that one. So I grew up in Heartland, Michigan, which is about 10 to 15 minutes away from Howell, Michigan, which I believe a KKK um, branch was uh, located. So growing up in white, in a white supremacistic town, is that a word? <laughs> you made it one right now. I made it one now. Um, I think just knowing a lot of the people that I went to high school with and kind of their uh, mentality, I guess that um, a lot of white supremacy kind of stems from that you were talking about. Um, it just, it, 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 like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a proving ground for, it's a really bad term because I live right by the proving grounds, but <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's a breeding ground for these very anti-diverse uh, ideas to come out. And given that our country was built by a bunch of angry white men, uh, that, that definitely, you know, further validates their ideas. Not that I'm saying they're correct. They're definitely incorrect, but um, that, that's just my little note background on that. So, yeah. yeah. Another idea that just came to mind is going back to the 60s, uh, the turbulent times that we had with all the, uh, you know, rioting. Race and, riots. Yes. And the civil rights movement, uh, you know, Detroit was at the heart of, you know, a lot of this riots, some of the violent ones. And so there was this phenomena that the white supremacists called white flight, uh, basically white families moving from the inner city out into the suburbs and out into the rural areas because of that turbulent period, um, also kind of, I think, plays into how this 
you know, racism and malicious kind of spread throughout the state instead of just staying, you know, in the densely populated areas. Definitely. My mom was actually in um, Detroit in 68 when that all went down. Um, Just, you know, kind of would make sense why, you know, people would be afraid of black people, especially white folks at the time. Um, If they're just there, there's a miscommunication of why people are angry, I think. And so that gets translated into right-wing militia groups and things like that that often are just kind of an overreaction to um, something. Yeah, kind of piggybacking off of that to answer your question, um, Dr. Wallace, I don't don't know why it would happen in Michigan out of all the states, you know, to happen. I mean, I have some, some... assumptions but um just piggybacking off of what Kyle said too about how his mom was like right there um 68 in in kind of the mix of it my mom was over in Battle Creek and she didn't even know things were really happening um until that movie um I think it's called Detroit came out and we sat down and watched it she's like you know I didn't know any of this stuff was happening and I was just right next door so I just wanted to throw my two cents in there about that um But why is this happening in Michigan? I think because Governor Whitmer has been very vocal and kind of like in putting her foot down on a lot of things. I know that can rub people the wrong way, especially if they're not necessarily, um, these views are not in align with um, them. But I like it. I like the the um, approach that she's taking this and stuff like that. And especially in given her response to the to the kidnapping or the attempted kidnapping, I think was beautifully done. Um, I'm interested to see where this conversation goes in terms of um, the president's response to this as well. I thought that was interesting. Um, but yeah, I think she handled it great. I just like, why Michigan? I mean, I guess why not Michigan? That's Jacoby's favorite. That's Jacoby's favorite question. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I think it's it's pretty clear why it happened in Michigan, right? Because um, we have a president who doesn't call the governor by her name. He says that woman in Michigan, the lady in Michigan. So that already sets a tone, a, a massly, mass, you know, a huge disrespectful tone. You know, nobody <laughs> nobody calls him the man in the White House, right? Maybe we should. Um, or maybe we shouldn't hopefully soon um (laughs) but i think that's that's it right there um the the disrespect piece coming from you know the top leads down all the way through through the bottom yeah i think um going off of that idea of the fact that like she's been referred to as the woman from Michigan. I think about the fact that I'm from Illinois. And so our governor took a lot of the same steps that Governor Whitmer took. Um, and, you know, he got some some pushback from the president as well. And, you know, has had a lot of the same criticisms that Gretchen Whitmer had. However, you never heard the president say that man from Illinois. He's still the governor of Illinois. So I think a big part of it is the fact that He's calling her that woman from Michigan. He's not even giving her her title. And I think it it also plays into the fact that, like, our president has a history of, like, just blatant disrespect for women. And I think that that plays into the fact, too, that, you know, I don't think he recognizes her legitimacy as a leader and he's using her gender as a way to undermine that, which I think is playing into it as well. And then, you know, not to say that there aren't 
women who are involved in right-wing extremism. There absolutely are. But, you know, the people you see on TV, the people who are holding guns at the Capitol are generally white men who, you know, are supported by the president, who don't have, like, you know, who aren't, who aren't afraid in this situation, who don't have anyone coming for them because of some part of their identity alone. And so I think that that's like kind of the power structure that's been created. That's like, you know, why she became such a target because the president really made her a target by making her seem like she wasn't the leader that she really is. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would, I would add that it could most certainly happen again because of the president's response after you know the people were brought brought in on charges he started his tweets with the woman in michigan is doing a terrible job and then he further goes on to say that she didn't thank him for his justice department and things of that nature and then he's he's like open up michigan open open the schools there's no sympathy which leads others to not have any respect or empathy should i say this man is also makes a lot of money so that that could definitely play into his uh lack of sympathy or even empathy that um he has towards common folk Thank you so much. Um, I want to kind of pivot a little bit from from this. We're not going to go too far, um, but I I do want to pivot. But before I pivot, I just want to thank you for listening to the Wired podcast on Western's own 89.1 WIDR Kalamazoo. This is Avery with Purgem Students, a nonpartisan activist group turning off the youth vote. We're reminding our listeners that October 19th is the deadline for online voter registration in Michigan. To register, you can visit studentvote.org. You may need to update your registration if your address has changed. To vote absentee, you can request your ballot at michigangov.vote. Young people can let others decide our future, or we can decide to influence a future that works for us by voting. We encourage you to visit studentvote.org and make your voice heard. This has been a message from 89.1 Wider FM, online at WIDRFM.org. Research your local people. People overlook the local elections. Please look them up. You're voting for people like, uh, like sheriffs. For mayors. Dude, that's the stuff that like will affect you like every day. Yes. One yes. of the biggest things you could do for police reform. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. You want to see change vote in local elections. Never better said it themselves. Get out and vote. This has been a message from 89.1 Wider FM. Uh, so now this next question that I want to ask is, you know, when we think about um, free Michigan and we think about the fact that we have right wing extremists literally as our neighbors. Um, What should citizens know about domestic terrorist groups in order to protect themselves? I mean, if it's possible for the governor of Michigan to potentially be a victim of a kidnapping plot such as this, um, like what does everybody else do? Is it even possible to prepare for or protect against these types of terrorists? Well, the one thing I'd like to say is, you know, I don't want to generate panic and fear, um, but traditionally the militia has not uh, been like an offensive uh, terrorist movement. It's a very diverse movement and their mentality typically has been defensive in nature. Uh, But because of the times that we're living in, 
they're agitated and they're concerned and their paranoia is up. And so we do have certain elements uh, that do plot and engage in acts of violence and terrorism, as we saw with the terrorist plot here. Uh, your neighbors to the west uh, a few years ago had a militia group that threw a pipe bomb into a mosque and also tried to burn down an abortion clinic. Uh, so these groups, you know, they're around. Um, this, the communities that need to be concerned that these groups typically target are government agencies, the police, uh, Muslim community, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, we've got African-Americans and Latino communities. Uh, so those are the communities that really uh, need to kind of be on guard. Uh, if you do go to a place of worship that's a, you know, a target for these types of groups, uh, you know, just implement some additional security measures there. Uh, just be mindful and watchful uh, of your property. Put up surveillance cameras, uh, things of this nature. Um, if you go to the polling station and you see these types of people hanging around with their guns, don't be intimidated. Okay, call 911 and tell them that they have armed uh, people at the polling station, that it scares you. Uh, don't leave, just stand your ground and let the police handle it. Uh, so don't be intimidated and you know, we'll get through this tough period just like we have tough periods in our country's history. Uh, but we you know, need to be engaged and we need to be educated on this threat. And, you know, we need to express our voices. We can't stand silent anymore. Thank you for lifting up that point, especially as it relates to um, when we start to go to the polling places, because we know, you know, we're, we're constantly hearing now on the news media where it's being, um, like we're just hearing a proliferation of make sure that you have poll watchers, make sure that you have people that are, you know, out there protecting, um, protecting really the conservative voice and the conservative right to vote. Um, and we know that in the state of Michigan, our um, Jocelyn Benson has said, we're not allowing weapons in two polling places, but there's been nothing said about the perimeter. And so I think that it's really important um, that we do remember that we have a right to take a stand. We have a right to go into those places and to not be intimidated. Although we may be scared, we may be nervous, but to keep walking through that process because um, sometimes we forget that. Like we forget that we have the right to call the police. We can tell people there's someone trying to intimidate me, you know, with a gun. Um, and so thank you for, for lifting that up for us because I, I don't think that that's something that I know I hadn't even thought about. And so I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and and I, I, well, first off, I want to say how it's really crazy that we're having this conversation about people, <laughs> be, like with guns at the polling place. That's I know, crazy. right. Second, um, I want to thank you, um, Mr. Johnson, for providing these recommendations because um, I know me being an RA in the residence halls, I you know obviously. Um, residents will have different views and you know stuff like that and um, I don't know about you but I like as a black female all the flags look the same to me confederate flag make American great again flag um, blue lives matter flag that all looks the same to me so when I see two residents walking through the lobby draped in these flags acting as like capes my heart sinks like and it's and it's gut wrenching. It's it's scary. So the the fact that you have commented and provided recommendations, I do have a question. Um, so one of the recommendations you gave was like contacting the police, letting them know that there are people with guns at the polling place and et cetera and stuff like that. But what, 
given, or I guess, what advice do you have for individuals who may not feel comfortable calling the police because we know that certain officers do identify with that community and may not want to tell those people to turn away? Yeah, you bring up a legitimate concern. There is a small percentage of police officers that have shown support or are actually members of some of these extremist organizations. Uh, but departments writ large, if you look at the you know, department as a whole, uh, it's a very small percentage of people. So there are a lot of good officers uh, that are there that have integrity and look after you know, the people and stuff like that. Um, but if you're not comfortable calling the police, um, you know, you could always send in a mail-in ballot. I mean, I don't know how, you know, what the deadlines are for that, but I guess you have that option. Uh, but, you know, if you're that scared, then leave, go back to your car and come back at a different time, perhaps, and maybe they won't be there. Um, but I would recommend just call the police, let them deal with it. And, you know, you're showing them that you're not going to be intimidated and that you're not going to be scared away from voting because they're playing and hoping that that's the impact of them showing up is to get you to go away. So that would be my advice. Yeah, I think to, to build on that, something that we, we were just talking about, kind of voting and voter suppression in our conversation um, for the WSA program, and something that like I always come back to is with voting and the idea of voter intimidation, which is such a reality right now, I think, and something that people are really like validly having a fear of is the idea that like it is so important to like like rise above and to like really harness your power because you know the right to vote in America was originally afforded to such a small group of people. And like people fought and died to be able to vote in America. And so like, this is what I said in the last podcast and, you know, I'll reiterate it again is, you know, if it wasn't important, people wouldn't fight that hard to take it away from you. And so I think it's really important to find ways to stay in your ground and, you know, voting has been everything I've been doing this semester. But I think another thing you can think about in terms of just trying to make yourself feel safe is don't go by yourself. Um, it's first of all, always good to bring your friends to the polls. More voices though is better, especially when it comes to young people. But it's also just, you know, it's good to have someone behind you. I think that helps a lot. I think in numbers is always the best way to go. And um, I just had a crazy thought um, to kind of prevent these right-wing militia groups from being there or maybe they're there but they don't take any action is if a white man like myself went with um literally any other person that felt uncomfortable that was not like a white male um to go vote and just walk up straight up walk up to them and be like hey we're voting today and like you're not gonna do anything about it maybe not like directly confronting them but you know a, a similar light to that i think would be really really cool um that is a really cool. Um, uh, that is a really cool suggestion of a way of approaching things, Kyle. Because again, that 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 promotes that spirit of of unity. Like we're in this together, and also the appreciation that if somebody else can stand their ground and attempt to intimidate, then someone else can stand their ground and say, "I'm going to be here to act in love, to act in um, integrity, to act in a way that I want to make sure that everybody, regardless of who you're going to vote for when you go into that voting voting booth, because we don't even know who anybody's voting for." But we don't want to make assumptions and try to threaten people. So right, exactly. that's huge. 
Now I, oh, I'm sorry. Were you going to say Taylor? I was just piggybacking off of what Kyle said. I think that's so important, um, especially for white allies um, to use, unfortunately, use their bodies as a defense, as we've seen a lot um, this summer with that happening. I don't know if you all saw videos um, on social media that were circulating, but there were literal videos of um, marginalized groups, you know, just standing peacefully or whatever, um, being, you know, prompted by these groups, by police officers and um, white allies would come and stand in front of them to protect them. And you could see them trying to get around these white bodies and trying to get to this marginalized person, marginalized groups. And it was just interesting to see how, how deep this goes and to see like how exactly what you said, Dr. Wallace, about building this unity to say like, okay, it's much more than just them now. It's much, it's all of us at this point because it's, it's a human rights thing. Now, on a related note, um, I'm just wondering from from the panel. Um, this is uh, I in our one of our more recent um, newsletters from the Lewis Walker Institute. We had a suggestion to um, watch the film Antebellum. So I don't know if anybody's seen the movie Antebellum. It's uh, starring Janelle Monae, um, and so. I'm, the only reason why I'm bringing this up is because honestly, like this whole kidnapping attempt and, you know, knowing that people are trying to, to engage, um, you know, in, in different ways, like it totally freaked me out because it came out in September and the whole premise um, of the movie is it's kind of based on Octavia Butler's Dawn where the main character is a black woman and she would travel back and forth in time. But what was weird about this film was that she, she traveled back in time based on dress and treatment, but she was in America today. It was set in modern day America. And it totally freaked me out. And you have to see the film. If you haven't seen it yet, you've got to see the film because it's going to, um, it's going to make sense. Like when you look at what they were trying to do to Gretchen Whitmer, and when you think about, you know, just the fear that some people are experiencing, um, it just makes you think. So I'm just saying, if you haven't watched it, watch it because it's, it's like, it's just, it's crazy. Like that could happen today. When you watch it, we'll come back and have a conversation. That might be another um, podcast. We can just talk about, you know, movies and stuff, but that we've got to talk about. about. Antebellum. I, yes. I had a question for you, Luchara, just like, or I guess rephrasing what you said, just to make sure I heard it correctly. So basically there's, there's something about dress but it's it's related to so she's like treated as if this were 1865 but in the present day or am i sorry so if, so if i tell you too much no, 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 i'm gonna no, no. give okay. away the plot and so so yeah. that's why you gotta watch it it's okay. it's it's crazy it's crazy you, that's on my you know watch what? list for sure it's on your watch list make sure you keep it on your watch list and speaking of keeping it where you are um thank you so much for listening to our wired podcast we are on 89.1 W-I-D-R Kalamazoo. We are having a fantastic conversation today about an intriguing conversation about right-wing extremism. We have with us um, special guest, Daryl Johnson. We're so glad to have him here along with um, leaders from our WSA. We've got President Taylor West, VPs Jacoby Wright, Dahlia Sanchez, and Emma Barada, and our very own wider host, Kyle Petronio. So we are just having a great conversation today. And you know, y'all, I, I can't believe that we're, we're, our time is almost up, but I've got one more question, one more question I want to ask. 
And we started to talk about this a little bit when we were discussing, um, you know, fear at the polls. But what are your thoughts on the upcoming election, as well as a forecast for what to expect in the coming months? So we're in a time period right now where we're leading up to the election. And so there's uh, extremist chatter about showing up at the polling stations, trying to intimidate people under the guise of poll watching. Uh, we've also had a number of street uh, brawls that have broken out recently between protesters and counter protesters, particularly at uh, pro police, you know, back the blue type rallies or flag rallies. Uh, we have a president, like you said, who continues to downplay the threat on the far right, but in overhype the threat on the far left, saying things at the presidential debate like stand up and stand by. Uh, kind of giving a, a subtle nod of uh, support to you know white supremacists and anti-government groups to get ready to rumble. Um, so I am concerned about this time period leading up to the election, as well as more concerned about what happens after the election and into next year. Uh, so if we have a prolonged election uh, tally of votes because of the massive mail-in ballots, as well as accusations of voter fraud and contested vote counts by both parties result in litigation. Uh, the final results of the election could drag on days or weeks after November 3rd. So, you know, as that drags on, these people on the far fringes get more agitated and paranoid and fearful. Uh, and also if the Democrats end up winning big, uh, then you've got these people uh, that are kind of poised and ready under the guise of voter fraud, thinking that this might be a coup against the Republicans uh, take action um, because of that. So your state house has already been invaded once uh, this year by these armed insurrectionists. Uh, that could have been a dry run for another uh, siege of your capital, but this time more prolonged and you know more dangerous. So those are the types of things you need to be thinking about. This is, uh, you know, we're in a period where we're at heightened state of uh, activity and violence. And unfortunately, I feel this is going to drag on into the next year. And we'll see where we're at at that point. Uh, but just, you know, the state, local and federal officials are preparing for that. And I know that they'll do an excellent job if something does happen of identifying the perpetrators and bringing them to justice. It's just you know, because of the nature of the threat, they just can't do much to prevent it. You know, I think you brought up another good point, you know, when you talk about the siege on um, Lansing, you know, and a part of the, the anti-mask um, type of movement. And I think one thing that was hugely disturbing about that situation was not only just seeing gun-toting gun individuals circling the inner chamber, um, but knowing that the next day there was a, a group of armed black men who entered, who were on our state capitol grounds and were there to escort members of um, the electorate who felt unsafe, who felt like they could not go to, to perform their duties as elected officials. Um, so not the electorate, but actual our elected officials um, who didn't feel safe going into our state capitol building. And those men were asked to leave. And I just find it very interesting how in our country, where we love to lift up the Second Amendment, where we want to make sure that everyone is, it has their right to bear arms, and you can, and in Michigan, you can bear them anywhere. Um, it, it, 
I just have to vocalize it. It frustrates me, the double standard that we, that we continue to see represented. And, and those men absolutely meant no harm. They were literally escorting fearful lawmakers into the state house. 89.1, wider FM. If I could like kind of join in on that as well. In addition to the second amendment, I think to me, a big part of this is about the First Amendment here. And it's about the idea of our right to free speech. And I study um, comparative public policy here. So I, I study a lot about different political systems and how they have different outcomes. And there's not necessarily like a conclusion as to what types of like political regimes tend to have more instances of, t of domestic terrorism. However, there are some correlations between democracy and have, like be, between having more democracy and having more instances of, of domestic terrorism. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about because I think in some ways these groups tend to use things like the right to free speech to like, they use it as a weapon and they use it to be like, well, I'm protected because this is my right to free speech to say these things and whatever it may be. But then again, it's a double standard of, you know, then you have Black Lives Matter protesters taking to the streets and their right to free speech is not respected in the same way. And so like there's that double standard piece of it. But I think it's interesting to think about, you know, we're talking a lot in our time right now about systemic issues and institutionalized issues. And it's interesting to think about whether or not our institutions of government make it more possible for these groups to rise. I would argue it completely enables them. Um... I, <laughs> being the wider program director, I edited a lot of shows. Um, another show that's kind of politically talk motivated is um, the Hood Rat Strategist. And he talks, Andy Argo uh, is the person I'm referring to. He talks a lot about um, kind of police brutality, uh, just systemic issues as a whole, um, white supremacy. You know, you guys should have a conversation, honestly, um, at some point. But um, piggybacking off of what Emma said, I think it goes back to white privilege um, thinking, oh, well, because I'm white, I'm protected in the sense that I can just go around with a gun and no one's gonna, you know, hurt me. But if a black person goes out and does that, it's a whole different ball game, you know? So it's, yeah, a lot of double standards in this country that I'm not really proud of. And that exact scene played out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, didn't it? Where a white gunman shot, you know, three people put his hands up in the air, strapped with an assault rifle, and the police drove right past him looking for the boogeyman. I mean, that's the, the most blatant example of white privilege I've ever seen in my life. Seen as a hero, as Taylor says. Yeah, literally, like, hero. <laughs> um, and, and just to point out, he made it across state lines with that, a rifle that he didn't buy. Um, apparently, his mother bought for him. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say, too, is the idea that, like, people were kind of commending this kid for defending his community. It wasn't even his community. He's from a Chicago suburb. Um, so, you know, this kid went there with, with the purpose that he knew he had. And yet, like, people will defend what he did, again, just relating to that double standard. Yeah, and, and, piggy, and I'm kind of going off the rails right now, but thinking about even the Breonna Taylor case and how um, a lot of opinions around that case aren't really adding up, like Kyle said, there's a lot of inconsistencies because a lot of extremists 
um, do protect their Second Amendment right wholeheartedly. However, if we look at the Brianna Taylor case, wouldn't you sympathize with um, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend in trying to protect himself against the government? <laughs> wouldn't that make sense because they broke into the house? However, this goes so deep that it wouldn't be just about the Second Amendment, right? It's deeper than that. It's it's more systemic. And it's just, it just goes back to the inconsistencies of like, okay, then what are we really fighting for? No, I think you're making some really strong points. And um, I mean, I, I know we could talk about this for like hours, but we don't have hours. I want to be respectful of everybody's listening time and, and your schedules. But, you know, I, I just think that what we know is that so much of what we're seeing today is systemic and it truly is an example of systemic racism within our governments um systemic racism with how we perceive one another and that's something that we are going to we have to continue to fight against and to take action on as the student co-chair for WeVo and the WSA VP for political affairs, I just want to make sure that students know that there are so many resources available to you to make sure that you're able to register to vote, request an absentee ballot, and make a voting plan. You can still register in person at the clerk's office and vote in person at the clerk's office through the election day. And a reminder to all students living on campus or to those of you who would go to the Kalamazoo City Clerk's office, you can register and vote in person on the first floor the Bernhardt Center every single weekday. So please take advantage of that. Um, it's a great initiative that the city has brought forward for us to be able to have our voting rights. So please take advantage of those rights. Um, again, go to TurboVote to get all that information. This has been a message from 89.1 Wider FM online at WIDRFM.org. You know, I, I, I first want to just thank you all for this conversation. I know that, I mean, I hate to cut us short, but there's so much more that we, I mean, we could have a part two, three, four, and five of this, and I've already got some ideas on some additional content, but you know, I just want to thank you all for making yourselves vulnerable and lending your voice to um, this conversation because so frequently we don't have a space just to kind of talk and get clarification. And Daryl, thank you for being here because you're able to, um, place things in history and also place like, you know, the thought process in a, in a way for us into a context that, that we can understand, you know, why is this happening? What, you know, what, what led up to these events happening? And also how do we respond? I mean, I think you, you were so wise in saying, don't be fearful. Like we cannot live our lives in fear of what may happen but we need to have a plan for if something does happen, how we're going to respond. So thank you so much for um, providing, um, you know, that, that wisdom and, and sharing that with us. Um, and it, it's at this time, though, that I have to thank everybody for joining our first Wired podcast. Uh, we are so excited um, from the WMU Lewis Walker Institute our Western Student Association and 89.1 WIDR Kalamazoo. We're so excited to be able to host this particular podcast and really talk about events that impact our, our campus and our communities in an effort to promote equitable and inclusive communities. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dr. Luchara Wallace, signing out.